You are listening to Myth Behaving, a podcast with a little bit of attitude on the literary world. Won't you come Myth Behave with us? Hello and welcome to Myth Behaving. This is episode number 34 of the Myth Behaving podcast and we're recording on August the 10th, 2014. I'm Carla Clifton, and I am joined by my normal co-host, Mayor Wilson. Hey, Mayor, how you doing? I'm doing so good. Well, I'm tired, but doing really good. We have had so many exciting things going on. We got, um, you know, um, I I started a um, a small publishing house with a friend of mine and editor, my editor, and we got our first book released this last week called Moth by Shanti Poindexter. So we are just thrilled that that is relaunched back into the world again. Oh, well, congratulations. That is exciting news. It is. So I'm, I'm a real publisher now, too. Oh, that is so exciting. What a wonderful next step in your life. That is awesome. Thank you. Yeah, yeah, a little scary, a little scary, but uh, loads of fun. So, yeah, there's been, there's been an awful lot going on, the la- obviously, the last weeks. And um, the second edition of Relics is coming out in the near future, probably the end of this month. So just lots of fun things going on. Well, I have not had as much exciting things like that go on, but this weekend was a lot of fun. We have a new con here in uh, Houston, Texas, and it's called the Houston Con. And I visited it. It was at the Hyatt um, in Greenspoint. And it was so much fun. It's in its beginning stages. This is its first year. And so uh, there were a lot of people there. I, I mean, a lot of people there. I got to meet the wonderful Tony Todd. And, oh, my God, he's amazingly funny and warm. And I just really enjoyed myself a lot. So... One of these years, I'm going to get to go to those cons, and we'll just go have fun and hang out. Oh, yeah. We're just going to have to do that. Yeah, let's do it. Well, hello, listeners. Each myth-behaving show features a very special guest from the literary world. It can be a writer, publisher, agent, editor, or anyone else connected with the world of publishing. Plus, we have several special segments related to reading or writing. in the library of a myth behavior. That means it's time for something from the library of a myth behavior. And today I'm recommending Stillwater by Justin Cum. This is this novel is a little cross genre, but it's a horror novel and it is deliciously creepy. That keeps you turning the pages. The characters are you you like them right off the bat. You you're just right there with them. And the the adventures that they go through, um, that it's really something else. I loved this book. This is one of the best horror novels I've read in a while. And, you know, I, I do a, as much reading as I can. Um, but, but I really liked the writing in this one. And I can't wait to see what the author has next for us. Since, because this is, this is an author to watch, and that's Justin. That is awesome. That must mean our special guest today is Justin McCumber. Welcome to the show, Justin, and thank you so much for joining us. 
Oh, well, thank you for having me, ladies. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, I'm especially happy to have Justin on today because we've had a chance to interact through various groups. And I want to mention that in addition to being a very talented writer, Justin has his own podcast. Now, when we had Dave Robison on the show, he mentioned a podcast called The Dead Robot Society. And it turns out that this Justin is the Justin he was talking about <laughs> during that show. So Justin has been has had has his own foray into the world of podcasting. He's got over three hundred podcasts. <laughs> We're not quite there yet, <laughs> but Justin, um, with so many authors and so many episodes in the can, so to speak. What is the most valuable lesson you took from your podcast into your own writing? Um, I think what it, it let me do was loose myself the idea that a first draft has to be good or that it has to be perfect. Um, I, I, I know that from speaking with a lot of other writers, it seems like when you first get started, you want to craft every word, every sentence, every paragraph, and you go over and over each one. And it's when, what really broke me of that was when I would get halfway into a book or a third of the way into it, and suddenly I, I discovered I had a problem, and the only way to fix it meant getting rid of, say, a, a previous chapter or part of a chapter, and suddenly all those hours that I had spent making those paragraphs and chapters so well-written was all wasted because I had to throw it away. And by talking with other authors, I realized, you know, the first pass, just get the story down. You don't have to make it pretty. It's like if you're a sculptor, it's like throwing the clay on your, you know, your, your circular wheel and it's just kind of making the vague shape of what you want. The editing process is when you get in there and really make it pretty. When you get rid of the stuff you don't need, add stuff you do need, and um, make it what you want it to be. That first draft really needs to be a, more about exploration and just getting that story out of you. That is excellent. That is such great advice. Of truth and misery. Of truth and misery is a segment where we take a commonly held publishing or writing belief and examine whether it's true or just another myth. Justin, feel free to answer this. Writing horror is much the same as writing any other genre. It- is that true, or is it a I, myth? From my own experience, having written and had a science fiction book published and a, a post-apocalyptic urban fantasy book and now a horror novel, horror is a, is, is a bit different because it's a genre that requires a deep emotional connection between a reader and the writer. Um, when I write science fiction... You know, there's always a, a bit of emotional engagement that you want to get, but it's not, you're not seeking to really get into them and start opening the dark doors in their head or 
poke at their fears. You're just more telling a story, but with horror, for it to be really effective, you have to word everything in such a way that it doesn't just elicit a vision or a sound in your head, but also a feeling. And with horror, a lot of those feelings can be quite dark and disturbing. And that's kind of what I, I found that I loved about writing horror. It was fun to try and find ways to word a sentence or a paragraph so that it wasn't just a bunch of words, but that it actually could get inside you and make you feel uneasy or afraid or, or discomforted. Um, and it's a lot of manipulation of the reader that I think some other genres just don't require. Oh, I totally agree, because there's nothing better than reading a horror book and the hairs on the back of your neck stand up, you know? I mean, it's just, mm-hmm. you know, you want to capture that, that, oh, my God, do I need to turn the lights on and pick up my feet off the floor? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, you accomplished it with Stillwater, that's for sure. Thank you. It was very creepy. I was, I was definitely, there was, there was one night I was reading it. I'm like, okay, I'm done. I'm not reading this anymore tonight. <laughs> I'll finish this up tomorrow. Because, you know, I live out in the sticks here. So I, I was not ready to, uh, to, to read anymore that night. So good job on that. Well, a lot of the book takes place in the sticks. So it's, it's kind of right there with you. Well, yeah, fortunately, mine's desert, so it, it doesn't oh, look. Yes. It's a, so I, I have that that difference. So if I, if I lived back east, I wouldn't have been able to read that at night. So. <laughs> <laughs> no way. Justin, what got you into writing? Um, back when I was a kid, my father was in the military, and so we spent a lot of time moving from place to place. And one particular place that we went to I fell in with a group of kids that played Dungeons and Dragons and I grew to really love the game but I just I in order to play you have to have an adventure and most of the time people go to the store and they buy these pre-made adventures called modules but when I was a kid I really couldn't afford to buy all the modules that I wanted so for me and my friends to play I would go ahead and make them myself And through the process of creating locations and and the villains and all of the adventures they would go through, I found a real sense of excitement uh, and and not a small amount of of comfort in putting words down on a page in the hopes that this would create a reaction, maybe some emotions, but but really get my friends involved in what we were doing and then the process of writing those adventures then kind of rolled over into just writing prose itself and short stories leading on in and novels. So Gary Gygax deserves all the blame. Well, we'll, we'll give him thanks, not blame. <laughs> <laughs> it's time for Myth Print, Tips and Tricks of the Industry. Well, it's time for another one of our special segments. Myth print includes a basic tip concerning writing, marketing, or anything else to do with the industry. Justin, what is the best tip you can give an author just starting out? Well, other than the one I previously mentioned, I would say uh, I am an outliner. And in the world of writing, there, there really does seem to kind of be you're one of two people. You either outline or you write by the seat of your pants. 
and I've got great friends that do one and do the other, and there's valid reasons that they each give me for why they do what they do. But I'm an outliner because I want to know beforehand where I'm going because I if I was left to my own devices and just wandered, I may end up writing a 300,000-word book. So in order to save me all that time and meandering, I sit down and I decide, okay, what is this story going to be about? And it usually takes me about a week or two. I'll go through, I'll start seeing who the, the heroes are, the characters in my mind, where the location is and what the story is. And then I'll go through and kind of chapter by chapter write a very loose series of events. And constantly asking myself, okay, what would logically happen? Okay, what would that lead to? And then hopefully by the time I'm done, I have a story outline that works that doesn't have too many, hopefully, or any plot holes. And that leads me in a direction that I find interesting. And once that's done and I feel like, okay, I've got my roadmap laid out, now I can charge forward without too much worry about not knowing where I'm going. And I do find uh, some comfort in that outline. Though, if I have to, I will change it as time goes on. If a better idea comes to me, then I I have no fear of taking part of an outline and then changing it out for something even better if that does come to mind. You know, your work includes so many different aspects, writer, podcaster, social media. What do you love most about what you do? Oh, wow. That's a good question. Um, I like... I like writing. It's interesting. I like writing, but I like having written more. And I know someone said that once. It's kind of a famous quote. Like writing, but love having written. The, 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 actually sitting down at a table or a desk and writing is sometimes a painful process. And I will find any number of other things I could be doing instead of this. So I, <clears throat> nothing makes me want to wash a dog more than knowing I need to write. So I will always find something else to do. But once you write, you get it on paper, and you're in the midst of all that energy and creativity, that is, it's really exciting when you have an idea or suddenly you find yourself stumped over something. And when the solution hits you, it's like the sun kind of breaks out from clouds in your head. And that's a really interesting and unique feeling that I don't know if too many people really get to experience in their life, that aha eureka moment. And I think that's probably the most fun I have. Definitely getting out to conventions or doing book signings at locations and getting to meet people that either are already fans and we get to talk about what they enjoy or people who've never heard of me in their life and seeing that they get to hopefully discover my work for the first time and hopefully enjoy it. That's, that's a lot of fun, too. Wow. Well, is there anything about your work you don't like? Well, uh, when I was writing Stillwater, uh, I, I'm not a big researcher. I know it has to be done, but sometimes I, I can let myself get a little lost in it. And you get that, uh, what do they call it, where you just keep clicking Wikipedia link after link after link, and you go down this rabbit hole of researching that you probably could have spent that time a little more wisely. But when I was writing Stillwater, there was some research that I needed to do concerning explosives because um, it's 
well, to say what that's about would spoil the book. But in order to do that research, I had to do a lot of Google searches of explosives, detonators, and all sorts of word combinations that I feel like the NSA suddenly had lights going off. And now Justin McCumber <laughs> is a person of interest because he did a lot of researching about guns, gun safety, bullet sizes, explosives, and detonators. And so sometimes that kind of researching, I, I kind of wish that I knew more people who I talked to about it rather than going to website after website and having to pull that information on my own. Because, yeah, I, I don't want to end up on, on a list in some government building. I hate to break it to you, Justin, but I think any writer is probably already on that list. Horror and probably thriller writers really are the ones who make the most interesting research um, search topics. Because with horror, there's also blood, there's skeletal... How long does a body take to decompose? You know, what, uh, how much blood does a human body have? Th those aren't things probably most people think to search or want to but when you're writing horror you have to know that stuff yeah yeah and i agree with you i've 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 put some searches in i'm just like okay here we go. i'm going i'm moving up the list with this one so mm -hmm, um, mm -hmm. and that's exactly you're right that's exactly how you feel when you put those searches in and you're like Knowing, knowing that that there is is something watching over you, tell, um, filing that little piece of information away. I know. You know I'm not a bad guy. Whoever's listening in to this exactly. from the government, I promise. I'm. I don't know if you watch Castle, but the, the one of the things I I love is that that intro to Castle is there's two people who, um, you know know about killing writers and, and actual mm -hmm, killers, mm -hmm. I'm the one that pays more. Of course, he's the exception rather than the rule, but uh, I always kind of snicker a little bit whenever I hear that intro because it's, it's, it's so true, mm -hmm. because we do research some very strange things, at least I have. I know I have. And you have to go to some strange places in your head to write these things. I mean, in writing horror especially, there were some people that I had to write dialogue for that I would never say those words in my actual life. But on this page, I'm actually having to type these people doing and saying these things because for the story, it's, it's true. It's what they would do. It's honest. But it is uncomfortable. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I bet. And I know exactly what you're talking about. Uh, you know, let's turn to your podcast for a second. Three hundred episodes my god mm -hmm. what a great accomplishment what got you into podcasting well i had been listening to podcasts i think before they were even called podcasts you instead of having a, an engine like itunes or something you would go to to download them all you actually had to know the website and, and go to them and download it directly from them and i loved listening to all these people talk about things they were passionate about and these were people that didn't need a radio station behind them or a network. They just cobbled together their own gear, their passion, and off they were running. And I really wanted to do that myself. But I didn't feel like there was a, a topic that I could speak to with any kind of authority that wasn't already being really well-serviced by other podcasts. 
but around that same time, I had gotten back into writing seriously. I'd kind of put it on the back burner for a long time. And I thought, well, wouldn't it be interesting if I did a podcast about writing and had some other people that I knew that were aspiring writers like me that we could get together and talk about what it is to be a, this aspiring young writer? What are the things we all fear? What are the problems that we've had to deal with? What are some of our victories? And I did that. I started it back uh, about seven years ago, uh, and I called it the Dead Robot Society because I'm a big Dead Poets Society fan. If I hadn't seen that movie, I, I don't know if I would be writing today. And so I wanted to pay uh, homage to that movie, but give it a little science fiction twist. And I had some people on with me that over, ye over the years, the co-hosts have come and kind of gone Right now, I think I have the steadiest set of co-hosts that the show's had, but it's been seven years, over 300 regular episodes, and then whenever we go to conventions, if we go to a panel, we try and record as many panels as we can to broadcast. We also have recorded some special episodes with uh, some authors who needed to come on and talk about something, but it wasn't a part of the regular show. So there's probably bordering on 400 downloadable episodes on the show right now, and they're all available right now. Don't feel the need to jump in and try and listen to them all from the beginning. You can start where we're at now. I wouldn't put that on anyone. <laughs> That's incredible. That's very, you know, big kudos to you to do it that long, that steady, and to create the whole thing. So, so very well done. Thank you. Okay, so what's next for you? Do you have any more projects in the wings? Well, I, I have a science fiction book. My first book that was published is called Haywire. And I had enough people come to me and request that I write more in that universe, one of them being my publisher that I knew that I needed to do something to give, that, give back to that audience. And so I had started writing a prequel to that story, because Haywire is a very self-contained story, and it ends with a bit of finality. There's really not a lot to go forward from that, but there were elements of the backstory um, that I felt like could make a full novel and, and be really interesting to the reader. But... While I was working on that, I was also working on the edits for Stillwater and getting it ready to get put out. And a few weeks ago, I saw a story on Facebook that was a, a really kind of creepy news article from some, uh, I think it was a small town up in um, uh, New England, but it was enough of a cool idea that I thought, wouldn't that make a really interesting horror novel if I just changed a little bit of this and a little bit of that and it got me so excited that I have almost finished doing the researching and this week I'm going to start writing the first draft of another horror novel that won't be a sequel to Stillwater but it will take one of the characters from Stillwater and move that person's story forward so it'll be a sequel more to her and not actually the town that it takes place in and all that that story's kind of done but she has more work to do so this will be her next adventure that sounds That's, fun <laughs> it does sound fun and i i know who he's talking about too and excellent choice because i i was sitting there today wondering well 
wonder what happens to her now. So, mm-hmm. so good choice because that 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 really does. Um, your readers, I think, will be leaving that book with that question in their mind, and uh, so good. I'll, I'll be waiting to read that one. Thanks. I, I I'm a a big fan of women in general, but when it comes to literature, I really feel like there needs to be more female-centered books. And in all of my books, I make sure that there is an an even distribution of story and character between male and female. Um, And when I wrote uh, my urban fantasy novel called The Minor Magic, uh, I wrote it for my niece, who at the time I think she was turning 12 or 13. And it seemed like every book she was looking at the the that was female focused her entire story stemmed from i need to find a boy or i need to choose which of these boys i want to have or i need to be saved by these guys and it it, it made me kind of angry because i women they're not just about guys or or whoever their romance is with they're strong people too they can go on a quest and kill the dragon, stop the bad wizard, whatever. It doesn't, it doesn't have to be always about romance. And so I wrote A Minor Magic with the idea that I'm going to write a female character that the book is focused on. And while she has a love interest, it is very much a, a backburner element to the story. It's all about her getting her mission and completing it and finding out who she really is. And it's not about who she's in love with. And that's what I try to carry forward in the rest of my books, that, you know, women are, are, I was raised by an incredibly strong mother and grandmother. My wife is one of the strongest women I know, and I want to put that in my books. And so having that character from Stillwater that I could carry her story forward really makes me happy. Yeah, and we're we're talking about Maya for those who've read Mm -hmm. the book. And she is, she's a fabulous character. She's just awesome. Just loved her. Thank you. Well, we've seen a lot of changes in the industry just in the past couple of years. How do you feel the changes have impacted your own work? And how do you feel about those changes? Well, it has been. It's it's like a hurricane out there in the publishing industry because one press is getting bought up by another press and then bought again. Um, The... A lot of authors, and I know I was one of them, they, they, in their baby writer phase, they think, if I'm ever going to get published, I have to do it through these New York publishers because that's the you know, quote-unquote right way to do it. That's how you go. Uh, because for a long time, it was either that or a vanity press, which cost thousands and thousands of dollars. You couldn't put your book really in bookstores unless you had a friend who worked there, uh, and there's really no way to get your book beyond that. But with the revolution of ebooks and with Amazon and their Kindle, that people can upload their own novels to it, or Smashwords is another uh, avenue. It's really opened up the door for anyone to be an author. If they want to be, the downside to that is anybody can try and be an author if they want to be, even if they're not ready for it. And so the signal to noise ratio has really gone gone through the roof, and and it's hard to get through that static sometimes. But I think that if you just keep your head down, you write quality stories, 
and you can find a place that's a small press or a large to have faith in you and put your book out there, you work hard enough, it will you will find a home for it somewhere. And I love the fact that the print on demand technology and the ebook technology has allowed small presses to be able to stand practically toe to toe with the New York publishers. In fact brick and mortar bookstores are going kind of going the way of the dinosaur slowly is making it even more so that a small press, if you're on Amazon.com, if you're on BarnesandNoble.com, if you're in the iTunes bookstore, you're in the same place those big companies are, and you can get you can have success there. That's a very, very important distinction. I'm glad, glad you brought that up. And it's not just the small presses. It's also the indie authors because there are a, a, a ton of just really talented indie authors that are out there that aren't with a press at all. They're handling all their stuff on their own. Absolutely. And, and um, they are just doing a fabulous – This inter, just in the, the couple of years that Carla and I have been doing this um, – I have seen so many changes, and even even my own books, because I, I self-published some of mine, and um, it it really it really is a daunting thing at first. But once you start learning how to do it, it's really kind of fun. It can be. For, <clears throat> I'll come back to this one. Um, back when I started the Dead Robot Society, uh, it was back in that day when. Really, the big presses were your. If you wanted to have some kind of global reach, they were your only way to do it. And if you wanted to submit to them or to an agent, you know, you had to print off however many chapters or pages their guidelines said they wanted and send off these huge packets, maybe 10 at a time, and just wait weeks and weeks, maybe months and months to hear back from them. But over the course of doing the podcast, all those things started to change, and the idea of being you know, a self-published author went from being this kind of negative idea to not so negative. And now it's kind of, well, that's, it is a genuine avenue of publishing to go down. And one of my co-authors, Terry, he is very much intending on making his career a self-publishing career, and he recently published his first science fiction novel called Empire of Bones and on Amazon Kindle right now it's like in the top 5,000 Kindle books and he did that all on his own there's a lot of published books from the big author from the big publishing houses that are sci-fi that they're not at that number so just because you have a big publishing house behind you doesn't mean anything really all it means is your book is going to be in a brick and mortar store but if you want to promote it you're going to have to do that yourself. Um, and if you want to go to conventions and, and get out there, that's on you because most presses are not going to do much for you that you can't already do for yourself. I agree. I agree with you. But, well, we've seen it. We're, we're sitting there on the inside watching this change, and, and it's just it's phenomenal. And, and you think, okay, well, we're, we're here. We're where it's going to be. And no, it keeps going. So I'm like, I, I'm just waiting to see where the ride's going to take us, Justin. I don't know about you, and I'm just sitting here waiting. <laughs> the one technology that I really wish I saw flourishing more, um, there's a machine. I, I think it was built by Lightning Press. I may be wrong on that. But it's called the espresso machine, and it's this big 
printing device that uh, they've been putting in some bookstores and some campuses. All you really need is the title or the ISBN number. You type it in, hit print, and then it actually goes through and it prints the entire book out, prints the cover, binds it, spits it out. If that became, I think, more widespread across all the brick-and-mortar bookstores that are still out there, I think you would see even more success for self-published and small-to-medium-pressed authors because their books would actually be in a bookstore. You just have to type in the name. Ooh, I hadn't heard about that. That See, it's just like there's always something new. Every minute there's just something new. It's incredible. Mm-hmm. The myth number is... And now it's time for myth number, our word for the day. And today's word is horror. Do you have any tips for those wanting to write in the horror genre that you haven't already shared with us? Any tips? Um, write what you write what scares you. Um, I'm not a religious man. I, I never have been. But when it comes to horror, the only horror that actually scares me is supernaturally based horror. I don't believe in possession, but you put The Exorcist on, and I will get scared. I watch a lot of supernatural horror movies so that I can feel that sense of, of dread and, and terror. So if that's what excites you, then that's what you should write. I couldn't write a slasher book because those things don't do anything for me. And I, I couldn't write a psychological horror novel because that really doesn't do anything for me. You know, I want to write what Clive Barker writes. I want to write what King and Lovecraft and um, William Peter Blatty, you know, who wrote The Exorcist, which was the first horror novel that really just scared the dickens out of me. I had to put the book down and come back to it later, and I'd read a lot of horror before that that didn't scare me nearly as much. So write what you love, write what makes you scared, and then do everything you can make the person who's reading it after you're done scared too. Don't be afraid to write down some pretty grisly, nasty uh, nasty things because that's what gets to people. It's horror. Very good. All right, time for the fun stuff. Justin, if you could have a dinner party with any seven people living, dead, or fictional, who would you include? I would probably include definitely Stephen King because he is my all-time writing hero. Uh, I would like to have Clive Barker come along as well because several of his books have just been so unbelievably visual and interesting, uh, almost like this combination of fantasy and horror that so few people can do right. It may be kind of trite, but Shakespeare... I have always been a fan when I was a kid in high school and when others dread reading Shakespeare. I, I always looked forward to it. I think uh, even if the man didn't write every sonnet and every play that had his name on it, he still was able to connect to the human condition in ways that very few other writers have done before him or since. I mean, there's a reason why so many of his plays have become cliches. It's because they're true, and he saw to that. So I'd like to have him. Um, I'd love to talk to Einstein as a science fiction author. I love 
reading a lot of science, and even though I don't understand the math behind it, I can understand a lot of the theory. And speaking with him about what it, how he felt when he made some of his discoveries would be really interesting. Um, just for my own geekiness, Nathan Fillion, I would love to get a chance to sit down and talk with. He, uh, I met him at Dragon Con a few years ago and got a picture with him. He was extremely nice. Joss Whedon is a, a creator that I absolutely adore. And if he just allowed me to walk behind him, cleaning up after him, I would do it. Uh, between Buffy and Angel and Firefly and Avengers, there is just nothing this man cannot do. And I would love to sit at his feet and learn how to create the way that he creates. Um, after that, maybe have my grandfather back for a a few more conversations that we never got to have when he was alive. Um, how many do I have left? That's it. You said seven right off the bat. Wow. I can't so little, wait little to go to that party. I want to go. <laughs> me too. I'm, I'm like, okay, I'm there. And only if I can understand them and they can understand me. I don't know if I could actually talk with Shakespeare if he spoke the way he did back in his day. Hopefully, he would, he would, I would have a universal translator in my ear. Yeah, yeah. That, I, I think that goes without saying. Mm-hmm. What question do you never get asked that you wish someone would ask you? And what would your answer be? Uh, where do your ideas come from? Just kidding. Um, I've never really had anyone ask how hard is it to actually be a writer. Um, because it, it, it can be an extremely isolating thing if you let it be. Um, a couple of, a few years ago, I lost my job when the economy kind of went down and I got laid off. Um, but instead of taking that as a negative, my wife and I decided that since she made enough for me to try to make a writing, a, a go of a writing career, uh, I decided to stay at home take care of the, the, the pets and the house and then do this writing thing, what I never anticipated was how isolating that was going to be. And I found myself starting to listen to more and more podcasts. And it, it took me a while to realize that what I was actually doing was downloading the sound of people talking because when I used to have a job, I was surrounded by it. And when I'm working at home, there's none of it. And I think half the reason I listen to some of them is just so that I can hear one human being talking to another and feel that that sense of being amongst other people. So it, if you've let it, it can really turn you into a hermit. But I've really tried to put myself out there as far as conventions go. Uh, I'm, I'm trying to learn how to write in like a Starbucks kind of environment. It is a cliche, the writer sitting there at Starbucks with a venti and a keyboard. But there's a reason for that. And I think for me, the reason is just to have human bodies around me. Maybe I'm not even looking at them, but just feeling humanity near me uh, c can be a good thing. And so I've never really had anyone ask what it's like to just be a writer. That's a great answer, though. Great question and great answer. You know. Well, everyone has their own personal myths, things a lot of people think about us that may or may not be true, their own personal myth behaviors. What myth behavior do people believe about you that is absolutely not true? 
I think this goes for every horror author. They think you're creepy. Whenever you tell someone what your book is about and they start getting this blanched look on their face. I, I know when I was a big Stephen King fan as a child, I, I can't count the number of people who said he must be one sick puppy to write that stuff. And it's absolutely not true. I mean, it, it can it, it can definitely cause you to access parts of your brain that maybe a lot of people don't. But in some ways, it's actually kind of cathartic. Um, my father-in-law died several years ago, and through writing some of this horror, it actually allowed me to work through some of the issues that I had surrounding his death and me discovering his body and all that went with that. Um, and it was some of it was actually kind of healing to express that darkness that had been created because of that event and kind of exercise it by putting it on a page. So as a horror author, you know, I'm no creepier than anyone else. I just I allow myself to go down some of the dark mental roads that others aren't comfortable with. But I'm just as as happy and laughter filled as anyone else. I love that answer. That was just absolutely an awesome answer. But if you upset me, I will put you in my book and kill you in a very grisly <laughs> way. <laughs> <laughs> I like suffer. that answer too. <laughs> okay, Justin, what misbehavior do people believe about you that really is true? Uh, that I'm a nerd. I write science fiction. That, that's where I really started cutting my teeth writing was in science fiction. And that that gives you a bit of an image of being geeky and nerdish. And, and I don't I don't hide from that at all. I have been a geek from almost since birth. My parents took me to see Star Wars when I was almost five years old. I sat on the roof of their car at the drive-thru, and ever since then, I've been a changed human being, and I love everything related to nerdiness. I'm a big comic book reader. I'm a big video game player. I go to conventions, and I buy toys. Uh, I'm surrounded in my office by superheroes, villains, and comic book characters and movie villains and I love it. I love everything about it and I really love that geekdom has come to become not just accepted but really embraced by a lot of people that maybe wouldn't have done so before. And yeah, I write science fiction. I'm a geek. I love it. Yeah, I write fantasy. I'm a geek and I love it. Same thing with horror. Well, as a fellow geek... I certainly share your enthusiasm and your love of everything geeky. Um, it just so happens, as we were talking before the show, um, and I'm telling this for our listeners, that we found out that Justin and I went to the same con together. I mean, not together, but we were both there, and we didn't mm -hmm. even know it. So I thought that was funny. Well, anyway, Justin, thank you so much for being our guest. We really appreciate all the information and sharing that you've done with us. Thank you so much for having me on. It's been a lot of fun. Yeah, you, you, I really do appreciate you coming back early from the con and taking your time to be with us. I know that was a great sacrifice for you, but I, for one, appreciate it. I think you've given us some great information today, so much appreciated. I don't have Dave Robison's voice, but I hope I did add something. You did a fabulous job. And who does have Dave Robison's <laughs> Nobody. Voice? Nobody. Yeah. He's, he's, his voice is, is just uh, very, very special. 
special. So, but your voice is very special too, and your information was awesome. Thank you. All right. Remember, everyone, you can go to MythBehaving.com for more information on Justin McCumber, links to his podcast, and social media. You can also read his bio and find links to his social media. Don't forget, you can download this episode on iTunes or listen to it right on the MythBehaving.com website. Please take a moment to leave us a positive feedback on iTunes. That's how we move up the iTunes ladder. And don't forget that you can subscribe to us on iTunes and never miss an episode. Well, thanks for tuning in to Myth Behaving. We'll see you again next time. Until then, I'm Carla. And I'm Mare. And we are Myth Behaving, where reality meets fantasy. See you soon.